What is going on, guys? We're back with another episode. I'm your host, Samson Jagoris. This is the Pain to Profits podcast, where we unpack the story and wisdom of entrepreneurs to help you save time and level up. And today I got my boy, Justin Morales here, who is quite the entrepreneur, has built a pretty massive team over the years, and now he's just doing a ton of real estate investing and development. You guys know I know a lot of real estate investors and development guys, and uh, it's an important topic to talk about. But what most people don't know about this guy is just the sick team that he built and the crazy journey that he's had and a lot of, lot of shit you've done in real estate. Yeah. So yeah. Justin, man, welcome to the show, man. I Thank appreciate you. you. Pumped up that music, you know, I'm fired up talking <laughs> about freedom. Let's go. We got to get hyped. Man. You know, I think, you know, the, the, what I love about that song actually is the fact that like, that's one of the beautiful gifts of entrepreneurship is freedom, independence, you know, and, and the song says paid my dues, right? So, yeah. There's no shortcuts. You got to pay your dues. You got it. For sure. You got it. Unless you got some inheritance or something crazy, but that's for sure not my story. (laughs) Yeah. You or me both, buddy. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) So uh, let's, let's kind of go back. Let's journey back. Like how did you grow up? Was entrepreneurship something that was always on the table? And at what point did you figure out that, man, I just got to go do my own thing? Yeah. So super middle-class family. Dad was a union electrician. Mom was, you know, doing uh, stay at home work and stuff like that. Yeah. Didn't have much money. My dad, obviously being in the union, sometimes you're on strikes and you don't have work <laughs> and things like that. And so, I mean, there's times people were bringing us turkeys for Christmas and stuff, you wow. know, and, and Thanksgiving. And so I remember going through and I literally can tell you where I was standing on the stairs when I asked my parents if we could order pizza and they said, we don't have the money to order pizza. Oof. And that's when I was like, there's got to be another way. I was about 15, 16 years old, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and said, man, this is. there's got to be something else out there. And at, at Like 15, 16, you read that? Uh, 16, yeah, I read wow. that at 16, yep. And then bought my first house when I was 18 from reading that book and saying, I, I got to do something different than what my parents are doing, very just in the box. And so, yeah, so that was kind of, you know, no entrepreneurial background, no uncle or mom or dad that said, here's what, you know, business looks like. It was just kind of Robert Kiyosaki, Robert Kiyosaki, Robert, uncle Robert. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny and I've met him and, and had the pleasure of meeting him and some of his mentors and, and, uh, you know, to say thank you. And I know a lot of people have that story of, of that book and, and other books that he's written. So yeah, yeah, super grateful for that. And it took me on a journey of looking at other opportunities and other things that weren't the kind of typical path that my parents and kind of middle America was journeying on. So do your parents look at you like you're an alien? They do. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, and even my brother and sister, you know, they're just like, what are you doing? And, yeah. and it's different. And I remember even my, um, my wife's parents, uh, she's my high school sweetheart, a little step back for those that don't know, she's my high school sweetheart. So at the time it was my girlfriend. And I remember when I was buying my first house and they're like, what are you doing? You're reckless. You're 18 years old. You're going to lose everything. Like You're like, I have nothing. Yeah, what no, am I going to lose? Yeah, I'm living at my parents' house. You know, I'm making a few bucks. I don't have any major bills. And I'm like, this is the perfect time to start, you know? <laughs> and then hindsight, you know, we've uh, we've done well. And, and uh, so now it works out. But yeah, they're like, you're crazy. This is not reasonable. And you're being reckless is, I think, the word. So yeah. How did you navigate that? I mean, I, I feel like, especially for the, our audience... There's just a lot of noise, mm-hmm. um, especially late start entrepreneur. Maybe you already have a successful career. You're making two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and you're about to walk away from that. Yeah, how do you navigate that? I think that my fear of failure and my fear of staying in that grind that my parents were in was like 
there's, I don't care if I fail. I don't care if I lose. Like I, I'm going to push so hard to get away from that, that I'm going to find a way to succeed. And so at the time, you know, I was a young, I mean, I'm dyslexic, wasn't ever good in school. And so, you know, the, this cards were stacked against me, one would say. Right. And so, but I was just like, I'm going to work harder and I'm going to fight and find a way to make this all work. So, yeah. So it was real estate day one for you. It, uh, yeah, so I was a chef. So I went from, you know, kind of buying a house, a rental and being a chef and then got into kind of the sales thing, which is kind of how I learned some of my sales. I worked for a company called Cisco Foods. Okay. And uh, so they kind of did some of the training and that type of stuff. And so when I was 20, I quit being, I was an executive chef. And then I went into the food space selling groceries and then uh, started flipping houses on the side, like on the nights and weekends and and yeah. all that stuff and, and said, again, I don't want to work a nine to five job. I was like crystal clear on that, that that wasn't going to be my path, that that was yeah. hard for me. And I wanted freedom and wanted to go do other things. And so, yeah, that was kind of. Was the transition from being a chef to selling a money decision? Um, it was a time decision. Okay. So being a chef, you know, it sounds cool, but unfortunately <laughs> when you get there, it's like, you know, you're the guy that's, when you get to the executive chef level, you're the guy that's washing dishes cause your dishwasher didn't show up and you're making schedules and hiring and firing. And it's like, this is terrible. Never spent Valentine's day with my wife or mother's mm-hmm. day with my mom or, you know, nights and weekends, holidays, like when everyone else is out enjoying themselves, that's when you're working. Yeah. And so I said, this isn't, this isn't something I want to do long-term. And my salesperson was like, Hey, you'd be great at sales. And you know, you have knowledge of food and all that stuff. So that would be a really good fit. A lot of chefs are young, so I could kind of talk with them and and be their friends and and do all that, which is important in building rapport. And so he said, Hey, why don't you come and interview and give it a shot? And so I did. And then I could work Monday through Friday and, and have kind of more stability in my life. So I love that. Yeah, and you're always working late at night too. You're not getting out of there till like one or two in the morning, and it's like, oh, it's terrible. Always, and it's just like I, I don't want to talk bad about the 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 that space, but I mean, there's just so much like drugs, and you know, the everyone sleeping with everyone, and it's just like it's total chaos, you know, behind the scenes. Like it looks like it's a nice restaurant and it's all cool, but at the end of the day, there's. Every, you know, every bus boy is trying to hook up with every hostess and bartenders <laughs> and waitresses. And it's just, yeah. it's a mess. It's a mess. It's, so yeah. maybe it's, it's changed. Yeah, I'll just tell no, you, you know, it's, you know, that was 20 years ago, but you know, that was, uh, maybe it's changed, but it was, it was chaos. They made a whole movie or a TV show about that called Bittersweet. If you haven't seen it, it's actually like kind of good. No, I've seen it. But it's l- literally that. Like, oh, really? She moves from the, from the suburbs of farm girl to the city in New York, wants to work at this really high end restaurant. And then it's just total cultural shock for yeah her. yeah so yeah, yeah i remember i worked um my senior year in college after i got done playing ball i had one semester to finish so i'm like i'll just do food delivery and food service it work out perfect for my schedule and i met a guy who was a 35 year old uh server mm-hmm. and he was telling me how good of a career path it was and i yeah. was like i gotta get out of here yeah like, fast yeah <laughs> really fast. yeah and there are those people so but it you know it takes all kinds. It just wasn't my path, and I don't like um, I don't like being held to somebody else's schedule like that. So yeah, yeah. I had to do something different. What was what was uh, Lindsay's take on you kind of making that transition? And was it always supportive, or were there some question marks? She has been like such a godsend, and just she has always supported me in every crazy idea I've done. She's supported me in 
great ideas, bad ideas, everything. And she, she was excited, obviously, for me to get out of the nights and weekends and holidays and do all that stuff and then get into kind of a more stable career where, you know, we could be together and spend time and have set schedules and, and all that. So she was definitely a big fan of that. And then the real estate was just, it was what it was, you know, when we were flipping houses on the weekend, sometimes she would come and help. And, you know, we were the guys just grinding it out and painting the house and putting up the ceiling fan and doing that before we figured out, you know, we need to hire crews and, and kind of take ourselves away from the business and go find deals. And, but yeah, she has been ultimately like just super, super supportive, which has been a gift because I have a lot of friends that their spouse isn't supportive. Yeah. And that's tough. You know, when, you're driving hard and you want to do this and they're, you know, a, a boat anchor pulling you back. And, and that's tough. I mean, that's something that I've been very fortunate not to have to deal with, but I know a lot of people that have. So, well, yeah, it was slow for me. It was definitely a reason why I didn't start sooner or take the, the leap sooner because yeah. of the security that came along with that. And she craved a little bit more certainty than I yeah. did. Um, which I think is typical for women. I think that yep. they want the security and, and uh, comfort and that's why they kind of nest when they're having kids. And, yep. you know, that's what, that's just what they do. It's just in their, their DNA, you know, it's not right or wrong. It's just uh, something that's super important to them. You guys were together for a long time though, too. I think, I think part of what my wife had to get used to was, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you have ideas, right? And so you'll talk about things matter of factly as if they are already happening. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, oh, this dude's about to just go quit and just start this thing. Like I see so many, you know, trappings that will mess them up. Yeah. And it's like, no, I'm just getting it out because it's how I process. Yeah. And so she had to learn that like, hey, just toss the magical ball around with me for a little bit. um, And then I'll work through the process. Right. Her and I actually did a podcast on the show, which is great. I can't wait for that to come out. But, um, she says that like, oh, I didn't realize that you just wanted me to go along with the idea. And I had to realize that eventually if you did pull the trigger, all those things that I saw as quote unquote problems or issues, you would have figured it out and either killed the idea or moved on. Yeah. 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 Lindsay, dude, she's such a rock. She's like, just a tough, she's beautiful. She's smart, but she's also just tough. She's just like a, a very independent person. Yeah. Um, I love that about her. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's probably what you need too, because she probably doesn't, she's not afraid to give you the business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, we're both super competitive people. And so just saying like, oh, we're going to just be okay. And just what we have is good enough. And some of that, like we're both like hard charging and like, we're going to go, you know, she played softball at division one school, full ride scholarship and did all the things. And so like the two of us are super competitive and super driving forward hard and which is fun, you know? So when, I'm trying to shoot for the stars. She's like, yeah, that's just what we do. You know, that's who we are. So yeah, you only get one life, man. You only get one life. Yep. Yeah. And I, as a, as a believer, I firmly believe that like we're supposed to show out and build a platform and build an awesome and amazing life and, and show that, you know, the gifts that God has given us, we're not, we're not uh, wasting it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think people look at it that way sometimes. Yeah. But. I would but, say that's probably my greatest driver right now, to be honest with you. Really? I, I think, you know, when we're to the point, candidly, that like we never have to work again, our kids never have to work again. And so people are like, why are you doing another deal? Why are you buying that? Like, why don't you just go golf and go fish and go do the things you enjoy? Right. And at the end of the day, like, I think it's like God has given me a talent 
And when I go to the gates one day, I don't want to be like, oh man, I could have done more. I should have done more. If I would have worked a little bit harder, we could have built another project and given more and donated more and done some of that stuff. And so like, honestly, that's like a huge driver. It went from fear of not having enough to having enough and saying like, how am I going to be the best steward of what I've been given and the gifts that, that God's provided me with? And that's the driver now. So it, it's not a fear factor anymore, you know, yeah. of like, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to pay our bills or we're not going to be able to do something to, we have more than enough. And how do I honor God and, and be a good steward of what he's provided for us? So dude, hundred percent. I, I almost wish I had that perspective when I first started, cause it's a superpower. Yeah. When you're afraid of, when you're not afraid of losing. Yeah. And you're just constantly in an abundant abundance mindset and mm-hmm. you're giving away freely. It is crazy how much that that term, the law of attraction. Yeah. How much just more stuff just ends up coming back to you. It's wild. I, yeah. I mean, I can't I, I did I had a real estate license and did some of that stuff, kind of brokerage type stuff. And every deal that I had to close because I needed the check, it never closed on time, right? <laughs> it's always the one that you're like, gets extended. There's an inspection notice. And the one that you're like, no, we're good. That's the one that closes early and you get it. And it's just like whenever you're in like that scarcity mindset, yeah. it's always a struggle. And when you have an abundant mindset, then, you know, it's just, uh, it all tends to work itself out for the most part. Heck yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I've lost like hundreds of thousands of dollars in an afternoon and it's oh, yeah. not all rainbows. I was doing my taxes today. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh gosh. Yeah. Wow. We could took a few lickens this year took a couple hits on the chin yeah (laughs) Yeah. no but that's part of it right like you're not going to win every time you know and that's the difference of the highly successful people is taking the hit on the chin and saying you know what i'm going to get back up and i'm going to go swing again and i might miss and i'm going to go swing again and i might miss but you know then you connect and you're like okay now we got some momentum and let's build on that yeah it's just a game i think i think too if you're employed and you're thinking about making the transition there's such a false sense of security in having the W2 income. I mean, look yeah. at what's happening right now in the tech space, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much 10% layoffs across the board. Um, that's happening everywhere. So don't get it twisted. You are not safe in your role. So you might as well just go out there and swing for the fences and learn how to you know, build your own resourcefulness. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And if there's some things you can do to insulate yourself, <laughs> you know, making sure you have enough, some cash reserves set up, making sure you have you know, if you're doing real estate, you know, buy one a year. You don't have to buy 50. You know, right. you hear the podcast of the guy doing 20 deals a year and 20 deals a month. And you're like, <laughs> that's what I need to do. No, probably you don't, you know, like just set up a foundation, get some stability and then grow from there. Yeah. That definitely helped me was just having some, some income coming in that made yeah. me feel comfortable to make the transition. So you're, you're uh, 20 when you make the transition from chef to sales guy. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, at what point did you shift away from that into full-time real estate brokerage was really kind of where you got Yeah. Here. Yep. Yeah. So I, I was in that space for uh, just short of five years. It was okay. like, you know, two weeks short. I'm like, oh, I should, you know, I'm going to not get another hundred dollars a month for the rest of my life because I didn't hit the five-year mark. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, literally it came to the point of like my my boss, my my regional manager coming in and saying like, hey, I understand you're doing real estate and you're doing it like at nights and weekends. And I kind of had my, my, uh, route and stuff that I was doing pretty dialed in. I gave away all the high maintenance customers. I kept the high profit, low touch customers. And so I could work like 30 hours a week and then I could go do real estate on the side. And so he called me in and he's like, Hey, 
we, we need to get you on board. And there's a lot of promotions that you get like for a year. That's like the trip to Hawaii, the trip to Key West, that's all inclusive and you know, right. the big thing. And my goal was to win every one of those. And so that all rolls up to him. And so if I'm not hitting my goals and my numbers, then he's not going on the trips, yeah. right? No Hawaii. For no Hawaii. Bob. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so it's like, Hey, what's going on? You need to, you need to focus on doing this and not real estate. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I think I really want to do real estate and I'm happy to keep doing this. And I was making like at the time, I mean, it's six figures money. That was like great money for a 24 year old. Yeah, heck yeah. And so he's like, well, I mean, you're going to lose your job if you keep doing this. And I was like, that's a smart move. Fire your best sales guy because your ego is getting in the way. Literally. I mean, literally, I mean, we won almost every trip that was in the years, you know? And so I was like, I'm hitting all my numbers. I'm doing everything I need to. And, you know, just kind of leave me alone. And he's like, no, you need to commit to us. And I was like, I can't. And literally that day I handed in my laptop and I was like, Hey, if you want me to keep doing this, but I'm not quitting real estate. Like, I just want to be honest and a man of integrity and just say, I'm not going to quit and, and go that way. And so he's like, well, you need to make a decision. I'm like, all right, well, here's my laptop. And then he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Gotcha, and, bitch. Yeah. And so it's like, okay. So I, I literally was ready to turn it in. He's like, Hey, can you just stay on for a couple of weeks? Like we're going to have to part ways, but if you could help train, which is like super uncommon, normally it's like yeah, de see, deactivate your emails dead, your, yeah, everything like that minute it's all gone. Yeah. And he's like, no, can you stay with us for a couple of weeks and transition and introduce to your customers? And so I was like, yeah. So then that gave me, now I'm like, okay, well now I have 30 hours a week to go go full time into real estate and go pursue it. And, you know, I wanted to be an investor. And so at that time, short sales were a big thing, you know, where you're buying houses for less than what's owed on the mortgage. Right. And so I, I started a short sale team and was like, it was selfish for me because I was trying to get to the deals. Right. And so we started a huge team, you know, we we're doing a couple hundred short sales a year. Dang. And, um, you know, so that was the drive was like, how do I get more deals? How do I find the things that, that everyone else doesn't have access to? Right. And so, yeah, that's kind of took us down that journey. And then, you know, from there we, we bought Keller Williams. So we had four offices in Northern Colorado with some partners. And, um, and then I, from there, I started to look into REO real estate owned. So that's bank owned properties that have been foreclosed on with Wells Fargo, Chase, you know, Fannie Mae, you name all the big banks. And then, uh, that's how we kind of transitioned into selling more and, and creating a big team that was, just grinding out selling foreclosed houses, which, which was perfect for me because it's unemotional. Yeah. It's numbers. We don't care about the color of the paint or the carpet. It's like, what can we sell it for? How fast can we sell it? Yeah. Next house, move on. So, so there's a lot you just said that I want to unpack. Yeah. I, I want to start with just this mindset by executive leaders and entrepreneurs for that matter who get so caught up when their top performing salespeople are doing other things to build their financial future and their wealth. Yeah. I've never understood that, but I see it happen over and over and over again. And it's like, dude, you have equity in your company, Mr. Entrepreneur. This guy does not. Yeah. So what is he supposed to do with all this money that he's making in order to build his financial future? You're going to stop that guy from doing that. So they just cut their leg off to save their toe. 
But the answer is yes, right? Because they want to keep them a slave, right? So it's like, but I don't think that way. I'm like, dude, go get it. Go, absolutely. But that's different, though, right? That's the mentality mentality of people that are trying to like surround themselves with successful people versus. I want to keep you a slave so that you can continue to work hard and I can ride on your shoulders right. and you make me look good. You know, that's the, that's the difference. <laughs> totally. When you were making that transition to, you know, building out your short sale team, mm-hmm. what did that look like? And, and I guess, you know, going back, what did you learn and maybe what have you, what would you have done differently? Cause I think for entrepreneurs when they, when they first get started and they go solo, they're doing everything. Yeah. And eventually you have to figure out how to delegate in order to elevate. Yeah. Was that a quick process, a slow process? And what would you have done different? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a pretty big system process guy. Like that's been something that's come natural to me. And so whether it was, you know, Cisco foods and figuring out how to make it work better and work faster and automate things and, and things like that, that's something I've always been passionate about. Yeah. And so when the short sales came up, it's like, what's the greatest problem with why short sales at the time weren't getting approved? And it was having a system where we have all the documentation in advance, and then we're submitting it to the banks, and then we have a follow-up system. Got it. Like, that is the recipe to success. And so having all that inputted initially and having people's you know tax returns and hardship letters and all the things that the banks required... So when we got an offer, we were submitting that right away and we weren't waiting for one more piece of information, you know? So it's like, what is, what are the points that are going to stop this from happening and figuring out how to overcome those objections early on in the process? And then we could get those things processed faster than anyone else. And so then people started referring them. Even agents were referring them to us because they're like, just give me the referral fee. Yeah. yeah well, give me the referral fee. Cause we can't get this done and you can. And so, so wow. we started having a team of people that literally were gathering information, faxing stuff, uploading stuff. You know, that was still in the good old days where you'd fax in, <laughs> you know, a hundred page packet to oh bank of America God. and then call them and be like, did you get that? Yeah. Page 14. Page, yeah. And they're like, uh, let me go check the fax machine, you know? And you're like, there's a thousand other people that have sent in their packet as well. Right. And we're trying to figure out like, did ours get in? So anyway, that was. So I know short sales take a really long time. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard them taking as long as like a year to actually come through. Yep. What's not your process. What was the typical timeline? And then what was your timeline? The typical timeline was never yeah. just to be candid with you. It was, it was, it literally wouldn't happen. And so the problem is, is you have a fuse. So there's a foreclosure clock that's already running on a lot of these. Mm. And so if it's not done by November 20th, then it goes to sale and the game's over. And right. that was the typical you know, course. And so we figured out how to get those dates extended and do some of that stuff. And so to answer your question, most of them were never, ours were between 60 and 90 days, which was Whoa. still long. Um, and then- But not really though. But not really in those times, that was quick. And again, we had we had ways to kind of, manipulate the system. Like we would submit an offer right away, even if it wasn't like a bona fide offer just to get in the system, get in the queue, get in there. And then we'd get a real offer and say, Hey, what do we need to do here? Cause that offer went away, but we've already been, you know, three weeks, four weeks down the process at this point. So then when the real offer was in, we could go. So again, it's like, what's the objection? All right, well, we need to focus on how do we get that deal done and part of that is getting in the queue. And so we're 30 days ahead of everyone else. And that was one of the things we needed to overcome in that. Damn, dude. That's so smart. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just typical, right? Like tie it up and get a get a timeline to run due diligence effectively. Yeah. And just get all your ducks in a row. So yep. I love that. Yep. As you were growing your team, what were some of the hiccups and challenges that you ran into with that? Um, whether to do it internally or externally was, was a big thing. So there was service providers that would say, hey, we'll do this and we'll take care of it. Right. Or do I go and hire the people, train the people and do all that? And we kind of had an AB model that was going for a little bit of we were trying to run a file with Bank of America, let's say, and then we would give this a similar file of Bank of America to an outside provider and just kind of say, who's running it quicker? How can we do this more efficiently? And so I love doing AB testing when I'm Smart. doing stuff or ABCD, you know, right. it doesn't matter. It's like, let's try four things and see which one's stickier, see which one has a higher success rate. And then that's the one that we're going to put our resources behind. And so that's what we did is we'd kind of A-B test and we figured out that we could provide the information. We could do our due diligence of getting all the documentation and all of that and then get it over to a service provider that would do the back end, the follow-up call, the did you get my fax? We faxed it 40 times. <laughs> and so so we did a mashup of both of them. It's not an either or. It could be and, right? Right. And so we kind of figured out how to hit the sweet spot. And that was from AB testing. And then again, a hybrid of putting the two things together. So dude, that's genius too, too often, especially early on in the business, it's easy to, to overcommit to an idea or a system or a product or a service yeah. without really testing it. Yeah. In the, in the world of tech, they would call that product market fit. Sure. Right? Similar kind of thing. Yep. Um, you want to try as many as you can until you get the real time feedback and then build your system based off of that. There's a good book called The Lean Startup. Have Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's the concept. Right it there. is. Yeah. And not being attached to something, right? Like I think people get so attached to an outcome or a system or a process and they're like, no, this is the one. This is, I have to do the processing myself. That's how it's going to be Ugh. best. And not keeping your eyes open to, Maybe there's a better option out there. And they're right. like, no, just I'm going to die on the sword and this is it. And this is going to be the greatest thing. And you're like, no, you know, be open to suggestions, be open to other things that maybe you can pivot and turn and go a different direction, you know, and that's, yeah. that's where the gift is a lot of times. Yeah. That's real entrepreneurship. That's real entrepreneurship. Yeah. I love that. So, um, you then made the transition to go buy Keller Williams. Mm -hmm. Was that really just to further feed the beast or was there some other reason for doing that? Um, honestly, if I'm being candid, it was pride. Oh, so, so an ego-driven It was an ego-driven move, which cost me seven figures to be candid with you. Ooh. Yeah, it was not good. And so <laughs> so we we went and, I mean, because I, I was a realtor, right? Like right. I was a realtor and people would say like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I sell real estate. Oh, I sell real estate. And I was like, no, I want to be the owner of the company. I own Keller Williams. I own a, you know, I have 250 agents that work for me. Right. And then it's a long story that we don't need to get in the weeds about, but you know, I had two other partners and they wanted to sell and I didn't want to. And this was, you know, 08, 9, 10, when the market was crashing, everyone was losing money. And they're like, Hey, we can't keep paying bills and we need help and we need to get out. And so they ended up selling the company to Caldwell Banker at the time. Yeah. And then I lost it. You know, like I lost all of it, all the investment. And I was the one carrying it, paying all the bills, doing everything and lost all the agents, lost everything. And, and so it was a good learning experience of that pride cost me a lot of money. Wow. I heard a quote the other day that said, if you seek significance, then you'll find success. Yeah. But if you seek prominence, then it's the path to arrogance. Mm. 
And so man, good. it's such a thin line. Yeah. It's so thin. Yeah. You constantly have to check yourself. Yeah. Um, and I can relate to that. I can relate to being like, no, I got to be the guy that owns it. But there's, to whom much is given, much is expected. It's Absolutely. A, you're not even selling real estate at that point. No. Right? You're no. just managing people and process and finances and P&Ls. And, well, and you realize like how much of your income comes from that action and then how much time drain was involved with the agent that wrote a contract that was bad, the yeah. angry consumer that's calling you, trying to recruit new agents, the agent that's trying to leave that you're trying to retain. Ugh. And you're like, I'm taking my eye off the ball that actually makes me money, that has built the machine. And I'm dealing with something else that's, you know, I call it $5 an hour work. That's like, yeah. you know, it's just, it's such a low yield that it doesn't make sense. Dang, dude. So good. <laughs> um if you could go back and tell yourself in that moment when you're making that decision, uh, a piece of wisdom, what would you have said? Uh, yeah, I mean, just don't do things out of pride. Like make sure that a, it's a good business decision that the numbers make sense and it's profitable. Not that you're doing it to have a plaque on a door or, you know, an ego driven thing that comes out of it. Cause it's probably not going to end well. And if that's where you wrap your identity up in, then when it's gone, then are you nothing now? You know, yeah, how did you, you, how did you handle it? Was it tough? Uh, no, like, it, you were good. It, like I, I had a handful of staff people and literally they got mad at me because they're like, sue them. We can go after them. That was wrong what they did. And I'm talking about like people coming in and like, get your box of your stuff and you guys need to, we're walking you outside type stuff. Cause they oh. sold it behind my back. Right. Oh, and so you were, you were the minority port partner. Well, we each owned a third, right? But so there was some sort of de- decision-making control in the operating agreement. Yep. Lo- yeah. Yeah. So they, so that was, you know, a lesson of like, you know, unanimous is not ideal, right. For dissolving companies. And they yeah. had unanimous and they sold all the assets, which was, you know, the realtors and the chairs and the, all that stuff. And so, No, I just, I was like, you know what? It's not meant for me and we're going to keep going. And I'm not going to just sit here and like cry and be mad and get in lawsuits and do all that stuff. And my, you know, some of my team members were like, this is ridiculous. You need to go after them. And I'm like, no, I literally, I would say totally candidly, I bet I was mad for like 48 hours. (laughs) And then I was like, all right, well, what's next? You know, cause, cause the, the gift, when you look back on that is that I pivoted into something much bigger But being able to like quickly pivot in life is like, it's a huge, huge blessing and not being again, that attachment of like, Oh, this is who I am. This is what I am. It's like, no, let's pivot. All right. Well, what's next? There's, this has happened to me. And so how do I go out and utilize that for the best of my family and and those around me? So. Yeah. Dang dude. So after it was, when you started getting into the REO stuff, yeah, was that, before, during, or right after? That was kind of during. So, you know, kind of part of part of my succession and, and what's happened is just looking for ways to pivot and kind of improve things, right? And yeah. so like during- Growth, like optimization. Growth, yeah. yeah. So, so when I was doing fix and flips, it was how do I find deals? Okay, that's short sales. So that took me into short sales. Okay, the short sales are taking 60, 90, 180 days well, there's probably going to be a lot more foreclosures coming because this is a broken model, right? Right. So I started flying around the country to Fannie Mae, GMAC, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, trying to meet with banks because I knew there's going to be more foreclosures on the back end because the short sale process wasn't working. Yeah. That's before they had technology where you could upload into platforms and 
see that it actually is there versus literally faxing, you know, to a general fax machine at Bank of America. (laughs) And so there's going to be a problem, right? So how do I pivot and become part of the solution for a problem that I see? And so, you know, went from short sales. Now we're going to go build a foreclosure team. We built that up, you know, and kind of similar to short sales, we'd sell a couple hundred houses a year for Bank of America, Fannie Mae, Wells Fargo, and just getting into those and figuring out the recipe of how do I get the Bank of America account that everyone in Northern Colorado wants to get? Right. Because that account is going to be each listing, let's say, six to $10,000. And so everyone wants that because they have a hundred of those listings, right? right? And so how do I differentiate myself and go and get in front of the decision maker so that I can get those listings, right? And in businesses, when you're starting, like that's part of it, right? Is like, who's the decision maker? Who can help get me to the next level? Yep. And so that's what we focused all our energy on. Yeah, I think, I think when we were having dinner a few months back, you said the secret sauce was literally getting on the plane, mm-hmm. figuring out where the guy was going to be or the gal was going to be, yeah. and then showing up. Yeah. I mean, like, hey, what's up? I'm Justin and I want to buy all your foreclosures. Yeah. The the path to success is often, you know, led to many hardships, right? And right. so it's not the easy path. And so everyone else was calling on the phone and trying to get through the gatekeeper at Bank of America. Good luck. And so I traveled the path less traveled, right? right? And I'm getting on an airplane, spending thousands of dollars, taking them to dinners, doing all of that stuff. And I was doing what no one else was willing to do and put the time in. And I was, I was, overly rewarded. I don't know if that's even a word, but I was rewarded handsomely. I was rewarded very handsomely. <laughs> and and so so then that's what we did, right? Then we're like, okay, this works. Now let's fly to Texas. Let's fly to California. Let's fly to Utah. And uh and so yeah, we built up a, a REO team and same thing. Yeah, a lot of our people carried over, you know, because you have to set up utilities and do rehabs and we when you're closing 25 or 30 deals a month, you know, you have escrow people that are literally just contract management and, and getting all that stuff going. And so again, just building a team, building software to manage it. So we didn't lose anything. So. Oh, well, you built your own software. Well, there's some stuff that we utilized and then we kind of morphed and changed into our own stuff um, and just customized it so that, you know, when we got a property, we made sure utilities were turned on and that the, it was it vacant. Was it occupied? Okay. Well, it's occupied. We need to follow up and go look at it again and do all those type of things. So right. just making sure we had, again, a good system and process in place. So we didn't fail because while I got those relationships from Fannie Mae and GMAC and stuff, if I don't execute, then I'm going to lose that contract. Right. So right. I did the hard work. Now I need to maintain that and keep those relationships going. So that's awesome. Um, how do you foresee, this is a little bit of a digression, but I'm just interested to get your thoughts yeah. where the market's at currently mm-hmm. and what the next phase looks like. Cause obviously it was pretty obvious that foreclosures were huge in 2008 cause yeah. that's the, what caused the economic housing crisis. Yeah. But what are you, what are you looking at the next 12 to 18 months? Um, so we're looking at a lot of more, uh, multifamily and affordable housing. Yeah. I think that. Uh, I think there's a huge need. I mean, it's not a secret, right? That there's a huge need for low income housing. We're doing some uh, efficiency units, we're calling them. They're basically like vertical tiny homes. And so it's apartment complexes that are literally 400 square feet down to 250 square feet that are just small efficiency units. And nice, safe, clean place to live. Nice, nice, safe place, you know, and, and part of that is people just need something 
to live in, right? Like they're living in their mom's basement and they're doing that type of stuff. Right. And how can they have something that's their own? That's like you said, safe and, yeah. and that's affordable, you and know, they're, pr- the and they're proud of, and know? they're proud of. Yeah. The, for, you, the affordability part is crazy though. You know, if you right. look at mountain communities, you know, Breckenridge or Beaver Creek or some of the places around us, like everyone wants to go eat at nice restaurants, but where does that bus boy live? Right. Where does the waitress the live? Home park. Yeah. But they won't even let that come in. Right. Right. And so how do we utilize that? So I would say that would be one is we have a project going in Laramie, Wyoming. And then we also have a project in Pensacola that's building um, apartment complexes, basically, that's a more efficient model, I think. And then the other thing is um, the baby boomers, like senior living is something that we're, we're heavily interested in. And we had some properties under contract in that space, because how do you how do you go and have such a big part of the population, where are they going and how do you get a piece of that is my question. Yeah. Largest generation, all of them will be over 65 by 2030. Yeah. And so, so how do you position yourself? You know, is it through assisted living? Is it between senior care? Is it memory care? Is it pharmaceutical? Like how do you get them their medicines? Like how do you figure out something to get involved in that and get a piece of the pie is kind of my question. And so those are the two big things that we're focusing on right now. Yeah. I mean, Every every uh, asset class within real estate has its day. Yeah, you know what I mean, and you have built your career on the back of just seeing a little bit around the corner. You yeah, know? And, that, and that's really what entrepreneurship is. It doesn't matter what business you're in. When you kind of reach that maturity in the business, you have to start to say, okay, what's the rebirth? What's the new thing that we're going to do? Right. Or you just end up washing out. Yeah. You know, we we I mean, we still see people that are still running the same traditional residential real estate brokerage model. Yep. It's like, dude, you are a day late and a dollar short. You know what I mean? So there's all these other brokerage houses that are cropping up that are changing the game a little bit. And even then, like Zillow's coming out and says, hey, we're just trying to get rid of the residential broker altogether to make this an e-commerce process. You know what I mean? So yeah, you have to be constantly pivoting. I love that. Um, How One of the questions that I was thinking about the whole time you were talking about this, how were you financing your deals? I think this would be helpful for the audience on, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're real estate investors or they're thinking about starting their business. Yeah. I know now you finance a lot of your own stuff. You do have some investors, but initially you guys are doing a crap load of volume. Yeah. At a certain point you get pinched because you don't have enough equity to fund your deals. How are you funding your deals? Um, yeah, I mean, it all goes back to the relationships. I mean, same as in the bank world of going and getting those relationships. It's who do you know, who trusts you, constantly talking about what we're doing and, right. you know, hey, we just bought this project in Florida or we brought this project in Oklahoma and what are you doing to invest right now? You know, and kind of asking people that question, it's always like, Oh, we just have the stock market or we just right. have stuff in savings or whatever. And, and sooner or later people would get excited about what we're doing and say, Hey, if you ever have an opportunity, we'd love to, you know, put some money with you or partner with you or do things like that. Yeah. And so that's how we started. I mean, we raised private capital when we had a oil and gas company and, you know, we started and raised a bunch of money, you know, we went out and, made phone calls and sat in front of people and had lunches and dinners and yep. went and raised some, some capital that way too. So that was, uh, it's a scary process until it isn't. Yeah. I mean, money doesn't have anywhere to go no. if you don't have a deal. Well, and, and when you realize like what the people's options are outside of that is right. like nothing, you know, I mean, you take my mom that's 74 years old and she's got a few bucks, not like crazy wealthy, but what can she do? Like bonds, CDs, stuff like that, because she needs something low risk right. and she needs something that is going to be there when, you know, she gets old and generates a little bit of cash. And so right. 
if you can be that option and then I do it with her and then all of a sudden her sister calls me and her friend calls me and you know, if you take care of people, then, then all of a sudden it keeps growing and you'll get referred and have to turn people away at some point. Yeah. That's awesome. So what's the next 10 year outlook? Obviously we, we know where you're going, right? Affordable housing. You and I agree on that. Senior housing. We agree on that. What do you have a, a 10 year vision for where you want to take your business in the next, in the next phase of life? Yeah. So, so I have a nine and 11 year old daughters, as you know. Yeah. And so 10 years is, I think the game's going to pretty much be over in 10 years. Okay. So um, we have more of an eight-year plan because that gets them through high school and, and kind of off to somewhere else. And so, you know, our whole thing is we can do what we want with who we want, when we want. And and right. so that's kind of where we're at in life. And so we'll I'll keep growing because my kids are in school and, you know, I can't go golf and go travel and go do everything because I've got a family and I'm here with them and that's my priority. Right. And so how do I keep doing that, but also keep my family, my priority is my biggest question right now. Um, right. And so, you know, we had a great opportunity for an amazing company up here in Northern Colorado, but it was literally, you have to be there at six o'clock to get crews started. You're working weekends. Cause you know, you have crews going on Saturday and it's like, I mean, easy seven digits a year that you're going to make on it. And it's a great opportunity, but it didn't align with kind of where we're going in our plan. Right. And so I just think we, we look at things a little bit differently now. And so we'll continue to grow and continue to scale and continue to add projects. But the, the lens that I look through right now is how much time will it take and will it take time away from my family? And so the, the business I was looking at was going to take all of my time and all of the time away from my family. And so while it was a great opportunity, it wasn't for me. And so buying another apartment complex, someone else, or, you know, in another state or whatever, it won't take a lot of my time, but I can have high leverage and have a good return on my investment without a lot of my time because I can have other people manage it. Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll probably do more of those. Dude, this is so cool because I think you might be the first guest who's really gone through the four freedoms, you know, freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of relationship, and then freedom of purpose. Mm. And you're, you're in the fourth phase, which is freedom of purpose. You yeah. Know, it's like, it's the purest lifestyle design early on in our career. We prioritize money before we prioritize time. Absolutely. And then when that switches, we start our, when we start our business, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. We go buy a Keller Williams and we don't really need to, you yeah. know what I mean? And you, you, you know, you're, you're making more money and your ego is satisfied, but at the end of the day, like you're, you're giving up the most precious asset, which is your time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we didn't get into business to have a job. Yeah. I yeah. can go do that. You know? Yeah. If, if you make $200,000 a year, that's like owning a million dollar a year business at 20% margin. Yeah. Like just go be a great salesperson. That's right. If that's what you wanted to yeah. do. Yeah. And that's fine. You don't have to be an entrepreneur, right? Like that's a path, right? But I think people get into, they don't even think about what they're doing. Like they just look at their business as a way to make money. Right. They never look at it as an asset that one day can either be sold or create some sort of passive income for them and level them up to yeah. where they have this freedom of purpose, right? Your girls are maybe off to school or living somewhere else or playing sports or doing something crazy like that. And you'll be able to be there. Yeah. Because you've been playing the long game. You yeah. Know? And this is why I'm so adamant about you gotta have a 10 year vision. You gotta figure out what your big hairy audacious goal is and then back into that. Don't do it the other way. Don't yeah. just start building a business and not thinking about where you're going to end up because you might not like it. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, I've been looking a lot at um, some of the franchise models. 
And I know everyone loves to build businesses, but does it make sense to buy a business? Yes. So, you know, if maybe you're not the entrepreneur that has this great idea, go look at businesses that you can go in and you can say, you know, I'm buying real estate for let's say seven or 8% return. I can go buy a business and get 25% return. If I'm getting it on three or four times multiple on my revenue, then that's a 25 to 35% return, you know? And it's like, (laughs) go figure out how to do that. You know, you don't have to start at ground zero and you don't have to go and grind and scrape like you and I have. Yeah. Maybe there's a business out there. There's a guy that's looking to sell a whatever HVAC company, you know, whatever it is, you can go in, put systems and processes and grow it. And you can technology and you can step in and have a 25 or 30% return on your money. You know, you can get, SBA financing, 10% down, you know, with SBA, real estate takes 20 or 30%. I love real estate, but you know, it takes a lot of cash to get into that sometimes. 100%, 100%, unless you're using an SBA 504 because you own a business and you can get 10% down. Right? Yeah, yeah, there's some businesses, you know, if you do a storage facility that's a business, but real estate, you know, there's ways around that for sure. And we've done that, but but is there ways that you could say, I don't have the great idea, but I can work hard and I can put systems and processes in place and I can grow someone else's business, you know? So I think that people should really consider that too. There's people, especially as we talked about with the boomers, you know, getting older, there's a bunch of people that are 60 and 70 years old that are saying, I built this business. I've been here for 20 or 30 years. I'm ready to get a check and cash out and move on. Dude, that's so wise. I've been preaching. I've been banging the table about that. Have you? <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. And, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why this podcast exists. You know, development's where it's at. Like, you know, I was pursuing doing a lot of syndication stuff and the, the margins are so thin and I had an epiphany. The reason they're so thin is because if you're a private equity guy or a fund, you don't actually even need to know how to operate the business. You can just throw money at it and hire a third party manager to do it. And boom, you're in the game. Yep. It is way harder to go buy a company that has 20, 30, 40, 50 people and then be the operator. Yeah. And a lot of these boomers are struggling to sell their business when they get to a certain size because the private equity group doesn't want to step in and actually operate the business. Yeah. They want you to stay. And these boomers are like, I want to retire. Yep. Well, you're going to need to stay. We need to run it for at least five years. Yeah. And so there's a massive opportunity for seller financing for SBA. And literally just this morning, I wrote a note on my list for my um, three-year picture of what I want to write. Mm-hmm. And I, one, I want to write a book about this heuristic that I'm building called The Total Entrepreneur. But I also want to write The Definitive Guide to Buying and Selling Businesses hmm. because I think it's the biggest opportunity in the next 10 years. Yeah. For sure, without a doubt, if you have the chops. You're at a different phase of life, right? So you're, you're just taking your money and using it to make more money. Yeah. Um, but damn, that's awesome, dude. Thank you for sharing that wisdom. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that people get so caught up on Again, they get so attached to an idea in their mind yeah. instead of saying, what's 10 ideas? Maybe one's selling real estate. Maybe one's buying a business, one's starting a business. Maybe one's mowing lawns or, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, but put them all out there and then work on them and, and kind of A, B test them, go work <laughs> with someone that's doing that. Because at the end of the day, people always say it of, you know, if you're not doing what you enjoy, then quit your job and just find what you're passionate about and just go do that, you know? And it's like, it sounds great, right? Right. But the guy that needs to make money, you know, he's got to put food on the table. He's got to go put food on it. And then he's 10 years down the road. And it's like, well, why are you still doing that? Well, I'm, I'm the guy that was making 200 grand and that's a lot of money. And I, I need to provide for my family. Yeah. I can't start over. Well, that's great, Justin, that you built this real estate portfolio 
but you've been doing this for 20 years. So I'm living off the fruit from 20 years ago. Right. Right. So it's a get rich slow program. I can assure you, (laughs) you know, it's like, it sounds cool and it's a great story at the end of the rainbow, but when you're making an extra 150, $200 in cash flow, that's not going to change your life. No, dude, the onesie twosie business, it doesn't change your life. But those properties that I bought 20 years ago that have no debt or little debt on them that are cash flowing a thousand or 2000. And then you have multiple of those properties and all of a sudden you're like, Oh wow, that's great. But you had to plant that tree 20 years ago <laughs> to eat off of it today. Right. And, that, and that's why your, your wisdom about buying a business is such a massive opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, You'd be surprised, but a lot of these baby boomer owned businesses are just have done things the way they've always done them. Yeah. I talked to a guy the other day that multi million dollar business, he's still doing estimates. It's like, well, you Why? know, they make software for that, right? Yeah. Yeah, but you know, we got it figured out. I'm like, there's no way you're better than the software. Yeah. You're losing on so many jobs and budget and margin by not leveraging the software. So just that one business and that one change, you might effectively be able to double the revenue in that business. Absolutely. Yeah, that, but people don't want to do that, right? They're like, oh, that's so scary, and I don't know. And it's like, yeah, but you have to be the guy that comes in and solves a problem, right? Value add. Value add. Find something and go in and look at the business and say, is this person doing the best that this business can, or is there little tweaks I can make? Right. And those little tweaks could add, you know, a million dollars to the bottom line. Yeah, I think they sometimes there's just this misconception, like it's not very sexy, right? right. It's like everybody wants to go start a tech company and raise a bunch of money and go public. And I might jokingly say, uh, guess what? When Elon Musk's HVAC goes out, you know, he calls, he calls <laughs> yeah. an HVAC guy. Yeah. He's not in there tinkering with that, right? No. So no. those jobs are, are still going to be there. And we already know there's a huge gap in blue collar services oriented type of career paths. Yeah. And so if you can come in and just run a business better, that's, that's actually the game. Just build a different business model within a service oriented uh, competitive market and you can win. Shit, you can be in the contracting space and just literally answer your phone, return phone calls and get bids out crush on time it. and you will crush. Yeah, yeah. And and building up a team in that culture, right? Because right. that's great if you get all that work and you have all these contracts coming in, but if you lose all your employees and right. you know they're got, they went to the other HVAC company or the other contractor, yeah. that doesn't work, right? So that's part of the secret sauce is building a good culture that people want to stay involved in. Dude, I love that. Hey, that, that business that you were thinking about buying, what type of uh, company was that? It was uh, construction. Construction. Yeah. Which would kind of align with what you're doing, right? Maybe leverage your own services kind of thing? It would, yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's the perfect example of a guy that's 68 years old, let's say. He's literally done it for 30 years. Yeah. He's set in his ways. He only wants to do business in Northern Colorado. And you're like, would you go to Cheyenne? I have a job up there. You know, no, no, we only do Northern Colorado. Would you go to Longmont? I'm looking at something. No. Have you ever thought about like adding this to it? And while you're there, you could bid two things instead of one. No, this is all we do. And you're just like, oh my gosh, I could literally 3X this business and literally just like this thing would take off. Yeah. But it doesn't align with where I'm at right now in my life. You know, so, but yeah, it's, it's crazy. There's so many of those that they've just got old and they've got stuck in their ways and you could come in and blow some of those up. And some of them are dying on the vine and you shouldn't buy them, you know? So it's like, you have to be able to, to pick through it and have hopefully, you know, someone that's going to hold you accountable. And then also someone that's going to mentor you and say, Hey, here's a business I'm looking at. What are the blind spots? What's the, you know, the things that I'm not seeing in this that could maybe take me down and having someone else look at it instead of being the guy that's 
the smart guy that's going to figure it all out on his own. So one of my end games is uh, you ever seen the show The Prophet? Sure, yeah, yeah. love it. Marcus Lemonis. Marcus Lemonis, yeah. The man, dude. <laughs> he is. But what he does really well in that position is he just has a team. So he's really good at spotting those opportunities, but then he he's a private equity guy, right? Yep. But he has he has an actual team that can execute. And I think that's where a lot of these private equity guys are stuck. They don't have those skills or those teams because they've never really built or operated a business. So they don't even know what good looks like. You know yeah. what I mean? So end game for me is, you know, I, I want to be able to buy businesses because of what we just talked about. I think that's the biggest opportunity. But I can't manage a hundred businesses, yeah. But I can put a hundred teams in place because that's my superpower. Yeah, is I know how to find people and get them in the right seat and help them execute, kind of get things started. Yeah, and then okay, I'm on to the next thing. Yeah, you know I, mean? so I love that. Yeah. Well, we'll land the plane. Super. Um, our guest is listening to this right now. They're typically a late start entrepreneur, and they're ready to break out and. Just do it, man. What piece of advice would you give them? What encouragement would you give them uh, to help them on their journey? Get started. Get started. And it sounds so simple, but go out and do whatever you're thinking and fail fast. Yeah. Just go in, figure out what works, what doesn't work, and don't be scared. And I was talking to someone yesterday. I went to um, lunch with someone, and she's had this book that she was trying to write for like literally the last two years. And at lunch, I'm like, well, so why haven't you done it? Well... I haven't designed a a cover for it and I haven't done this and I don't have an editor. And so I'm like, all right, get out your phone. All right, get on Fiverr and someone's going to design you a cover. Literally by the time you get home, you'll probably have some (laughs) renderings of this. Get on like Kindle and you can do an ebook right now. You don't have to have a publisher and, you know, she's trying to do this, like I'm going to launch this thing, but it's like, no, just go get started. Go take one small step and then, all right, now I have a cover. Okay. Now I have the Kindle version that's uploaded. Yes. All right. Well, do you want to go and have a, you know, a big launch party and do all that? All right. Well, now you got to go print books. Like what's the next step, the next step, the next step. And as simple as that is, people just get stuck in like, oh my gosh, I have to do 400 things. And how can I plan the launch party? And it's like, you don't have a book yet. (laughs) Go back to like, let's get the cover done. Let's get it on, you know, so you can say, hey, go to Kindle and download my book for three bucks, right? right? Let's go back to like the super basics and then we'll scale to that. But you have to take a step today and yeah. you have to go and be willing to fail and have like, okay, well, that cover sucked. All right, next, go do another one. Right. You know, oh, well, there's this objection that came up. Okay, well, let's overcome that and go to the next, but fail fast and just get moving. Like take a step and people don't take a step and they get so caught up in the minutia and the, how do I do this? And what's the end game? And what's it look like in 10 years? Don't care. doesn't matter. Take a step today and, and take some action. Yeah. I love that, dude. Well, we're going to end on that. I ain't got shit else to say. That. that was <laughs> awesome, dude. I appreciate you. I love you a bunch, dude. Thanks yeah, for being here for being for just me. like a mentor in my life. You drop so much knowledge and wisdom. Every time I hear you talk, I get super motivated and I just want to like go run through a wall or something. So thanks yeah. for being here, bro. I Thank you. It. Thanks for having me. This is great. You bet, dude.